when we drop a hydro far a water farm or a hydropanel farm into a community, we're not only increasing human health, but we're also reducing plastic consumption or the human capital of, of walking for water. Welcome to The Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-conscious individuals looking to learn the ideas, lessons, and philosophies from leaders working in climate. I'm your host, Ethan Svee, and today on the show, I'm speaking with Neil Grimmer about water and how ensuring every person has access to clean water is a massive part of the net zero future. In the fight to ensure we maintain livable conditions on this planet, for us and everything else here, carbon gets most of the spotlight. However, water is the key ingredient that enables life in this beautiful world. And yet, according to the World Health Organization, 2 billion people don't have access to clean drinking water at their home. We've covered this topic in light detail with Andrea Johnson of Green Empowerment. But today on the show, Neil and I discuss the water gap in full detail and how his company, Source Global, is innovating a new way to ensure every single person has access to safe drinking water. Neil is the brand president of Source Global, the creators of the Hydro Panel a sustainable water technology that uses the power of the sun to extract an endless volume of clean, reliable drinking water. Imagine you live in a desert, off the grid, and not connected to a public source of water. Instead of walking or driving miles to the nearest water source, you can use hydro panels to collect water out of the air right outside your home. This is one of Source Global's many projects, and the one we're going to talk about with Neil today. Prior to Source Global, Neil was the co-founder and CEO of Plum Organics, one of the fastest-growing organic food brands in the U.S. and revolutionized the dormant and commoditized category. In 2013, Neil sold Plum Organics to Campbell Soup Company, where he served as a senior executive for more than five years. Neil's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, the Financial Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Fast Company. He's also a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. One last quick note before we jump in. There are a few times when Neil's internet has slight issues, but bear with us. During the episode, we covered Neil's philosophy towards challenging the status quo, which he developed in his punk rock days, and how that shaped his climate perspectives. We also discussed his lessons from his time as a CEO and co-founder, and guidance he took from the founders of the B Corp movement, including CEOs at Cliff Bar and Patagonia. Here we go. Neil Grimmer, brand president of Source Global. We, oh, we could talk about food for days, but... Uh, Neil, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Ridiculously excited. Really, truly ridiculously excited. And we've got a ton to cover. You and I were just talking about food, which I'm sure will come up throughout the rest of the interview. But we also have topics to talk about, including punk rock, being a vegan, art, water, organic food, motorcycles, and we're probably not going to cover all of it. But I thought a great place we could start was your upbringing as a, um, I don't know, upbringing is the right word, but your your childhood and, and young adulthood as a vegan rock star. Um, and then any <laughs> principles you took away from that to now where you are today and, and giving us a little bit of the history of how you got to source. Yeah, totally. So I'll frame it correctly for the for the audience here. Um, yeah, when I was 16, um, I was super into punk rock music and animal rights and um, I was that annoying kid in high school, you know, that had the Mohawk and, you know, probably one out of three kids in our school and, um, you know, saw every opportunity to bring politics and social justice to the, to the conversation. Right. So probably that annoying, annoying dude in that way. But, um, but what was great about it in many ways, the first time that I started thinking about the implications of what I do every day, like what you eat, 
to what I could do to change something in the world that feels very hard to change, right? In that case was like, at that time it was veganism, animal rights. And, um, and so I started on a food journey, kind of trying to figure out, and it wasn't driven by health by any means. So I was like, you know, not eating healthy food per se, but I was trying to eat the best food to, to not have an impact on animals in that regard. And then I flew out to California, I was 17, and um, plugged into the punk rock scene that was happening in Berkeley, California, which was one of the most amazing experiences I've probably ever had in my life. Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day, when he accepted the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, talked about that time. There was about 150 of us in this club. Everyone picked up an instrument. And, you know, I didn't really even know how to play bass, but I picked up a bass, started a band. And, you know, we were all playing for each other, right? So, you know, your talent was, you had the mix of like Green Day and Rancid, and then you had bands like mine, which weren't super talented, but we had a ton of energy and passion for it. And um, and it was all happening in that kind of moment in the early 90s. And, you know, it's funny, We um, one of the more memorable times or experiences I had was taking our band on tour. And so the East Bay, it was called the East Bay Punk Rock, um, was very, very popular around the country. And so... There was a little ant trail that was going out of Berkeley, California, where Green Day would go on tour and then another band and then another band. And then we'd go on and basically you're following the same routes and you're playing in bars, basements, barns, you know, anywhere you can get a gig. And it was all DIY, um, all ages shows. And it was about five bucks a show uh, for someone to go to see. And so, you know, you'd end up, you know, um, making a little bit of scratch to get to the next town from the show itself. And then what we do is pull into Kmart and get, you know, champion t-shirts and silkscreen in front of the club before the show and then sell t-shirts to, to eat along the road. Um, and it was probably one of the most exciting periods I've had in my life. And just that you just met all these interesting people. You were really trying to figure it out as you went. And none of us at the time, you know, had any background in organizing a tour making money, doing any of that kind of stuff. And upon reflecting now, after starting a few companies and, you know, being an executive at two Fortune 500 companies, I look back at those days, actually, many of those things were very influential as how I became an entrepreneur, you know, and, and some of the principles were one was tap into a movement. So, you know, that, that scene at the time was plugged into social justice, animal rights, you name it, but it was was a social movement across the country, nascent at the time, but you know, you were slipstreaming into a set of ideas that were really starting to bubble up around the country. Second thing was pull a great team together and create amazing shit, you know, and that's what we ended up doing with our music. And then the last thing is that gaffer tape, duct tape seems to solve most problems in the world. And that's definitely true of entrepreneurialism. Yeah, my impression is that in the corporate setting, at least the Fortune 500, there was a little bit more of strategic planning um, than there was maybe in the 90s punk rock, <laughs> exactly. but, but maybe yeah. not. Let, let me know. Let me know if behind the scenes, um, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of duct tape at the at the executive level. Yeah, you touched upon some of those those movements of the early 90s, vegan animal rights. Um, today. You mentioned that they were also more fringe as well. So today, those are still issues that are, you know, I think on common parlance and, and aware of the public consensus. But would you say that the the amount of people who care has peaked um, relative to your time uh, in the 90s? And how has that changed? And and I, I want to compare it into climate change as well, right? Because yeah. now I think you have the equivalent 90s teenager, although they're 
it's crazy there i don't know like a, a, a gen z teenager right who's also screaming from the rooftops um and i don't hang out with a lot of teenagers so i don't know but presumably it's 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 vegan and animal rights but there's also a lot of climate and so oh, yeah. do you think that the, the climate voice is going to peak um now or is it going to continue to get larger and larger and larger as we go through the next decades yeah what's so exciting to see is that so i have two uh, teenage daughters um Paxton, who's 18, and Izzy, who's 16. So I have a front row seat to to a lot of this. And you know what's what's really exciting um, is that I think you know the Gen Z millennials and Gen Z they care and they care deeply about their environment, social justice, race, and discrimination of any form. Quite frankly, and there's there's a there's not as much of a tolerance for the injustices that historically have been there. And so um, it's showing up in different ways. You know, it's not. It's not through traditional punk rock music and stuff and it may show up on TikTok, but but the ideas are still there. And I think specifically with climate change, different than probably even back when, you know, when I was in that kind of age where it was a theory, an idea. Like when I was in a high school, middle school, they were talking about global warming as a concept. Today, it's very real, very present, and there's artifacts of it everywhere, right? And so I think it just changes the orientation and this next generation are going to be leaders in transforming the world we live in and with no uncertain terms and we actually need them to be right so that same challenger mentality that comes from punk rock needs to be pervasive in all aspects of our lives because the status quo what we're doing today isn't working right and so we need innovation we need fresh ideas we need challenging systems that have failed people um, now more than ever and when you think about um you know, not a reflection and no pressure on your daughters to have children or anyone's children to have children. Um, but do you think that when, if, you know, your supposed grandchildren are 17, will they be talking about climate change as well? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's probably, probably less climate change and climate changed with a D, right? The idea that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's transformation that's happening and it will continue. But I actually think there's a, there's a tipping point when, I think the conversation that's happening now is that, you know, there is the idea that we can actually stem the climate change that's happening through action today. And it needs to be unified global action, which we all know is is difficult. It's quite frankly difficult to even get unified um, in the country around some of these ideas. But uh, I think, you know, when we're talking about, you know, my grandkids, we're probably talking about a state where the climate has changed to a degree where now there's a persistent set of issues that are, are needing to be managed. And the idea of resiliency is going to be top of mind. You know, how do you live within a changed world um, with the fundamental basics of where do you get food, where do you get water, shelter, all those things. Um, and I think they're going to, it's going to drive, you know, a new wave of innovation. And, um, you know, some of the things we'll talk about in a bit with the water technology that we have here at Source, part of that. But, but I do think, you know, um, humans are highly adaptive highly creative. And, and so I think you will see a whole new set of solutions on how to manage and be more resilient within that changed world. Yeah. And in part, this is such a fun interview for me because as, um, you know, as we think about a net zero future, a lot of that comes down to the carbon piece. Um, and we I think climate change and there's this great graphic of like a, a circle, but there's um, like the focus is exclusively on carbon emissions, but water is a huge piece of it. Waste is a huge piece of it. And then there's right. also mitigation and adaption, which again, we will get to. Um, you mentioned unified action being a difficult thing. Um, and we absolutely need it to uh, combat climate change. Part of your background is 
on human-centered design and helping individuals make group collective decisions or helping make products that help individuals uh, you know, use the products well and correctly and impactfully. So tell us about the time where you're transitioning from vegan punk rock star to um, IDEO and human-centered design. Yeah. So I, um, while I was playing music and, you know, all of that, I was also going to art school. And so, um, when I graduated, I was making, um, futuristic, futuristic products, basically things that were fully functional products, but they were more cultural criticism, if you will. Right. You know, where, um, you know, one of the installations I did in San Francisco were these, these very medical medicinal looking poles hanging down and it was called, um, forest to the future and each one had a face mask and it had emitted a scent of a tree right and so you're walking through a forest of a simulated forest right kind of thing and um someone from stanford product design saw my my work and they're like oh man you got to come and show your work to the to the design students um and i had never even heard of stanford product design never even you know thought of design as a you know as a discipline it would be even remotely related to my life and when i went down to Stanford, I got to meet David Kelly, who's the founder of IDEO and is also the founder of the Stanford Product Design Program, now called the D School or the Design School. And I got to meet all these amazing creative people. And what it was, was a group of people, half of them were artists, half were engineers. And when you went into Stanford, you swap places. So the engineers took two years of art school and the artists took two years of engineering school. And I fully fell in love. I, I actually had this moment where I realized that the work that I was doing using the exact same skill sets were being more of a cultural critic. And all of these people were actually designing and creating to change people's lives. And so I made the leap. I jumped out of the art world and jumped into Stanford product design. And um, and from there, I went to IDEA, which is a leading design and innovation firm worked under David Kelly, um, Tim Brown, who are mentors. And I, I would say my, uh, my heroes in many ways, design heroes. And, um, and what they developed at IDEA was human centered design, which is, it sounds really simple, but it's, um, surprising that not a lot of companies still today use this methodology, but it's a using empathy and observation and understanding to look at the consumers you're looking to serve. And then based on the needs, wants, and desires that you understand from them, use that as the basis of what you design from the product. So if you do it right, you're then fulfilling their needs, wants, and desires once the product's created. I mean, it sounds super simple and intuitive, and you'd say, well, isn't everyone doing that? And the reality is, historically, that wasn't the case. And even today, you know, um, oftentimes, you know, people don't spend the time and use empathy, which is a strong, powerful human tool to really get it right. Um, and, you know, that methodology is now expanded into design of business, design of uh, systems, design of communities, the, you know, it, it's scalable applied to almost anything. And so I would even imagine, you know, um, human habitats, you know, on Mars, same methodology would be applied to get to the right answer on that. You know, you brought up empathy, which uh, I'd love to touch on for a moment, because, I, you know, in, in part, climate change is a very partisan uh, issue today, unfortunately, yeah. at least in the United States, um, I think, 
in more globally, uh, it's not the case. Um, and so from your perspective, in terms of like communicating the human, human centered design around communicating climate change, are there any pieces of the puzzle that you see? You live in Arizona, um, which is uh, not necessarily a, a blue state. Um, so are there any successful tools you see for communicating climate change and doing it with empathy? Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things that, um, and, and by the way, I love living in Arizona because, you know, I'm a Bay Area guy through and through. I've lived in uh, Oakland, California for the last 30 plus years. But I actually love being in Arizona because I run into such a diverse set of perspectives that, um, you know, now that we're kind of living in more bubbles, you know, you just don't get exposed to. But one of the things that I think we, we tend to debate a lot about the why that we're experiencing these very difficult conditions, um, whether it be route, flash floods, um, you name it, just get on the on the news every day. But what is not um, dividing us is the what we do about it and how we actually how we actually rally and take care of people when those moments happen. And that's not partisan. You know, when when you have flooding, you know, in the South, that's, that's not a partisan issue. That's a all hands on deck. Let's solve that problem, right? And so, I think putting the rhetoric aside, what gives me hope is that you know, obviously, in the face of a crisis, the country does rally. Um, people rally together and the humanity of of who we are as Americans comes out. And I think um, I think we need to have first principles. We need to get to that and then work back from the from that point of unification to the differences that we have. And I think that's that's a little glimmer of hope where where it seems like everyone's pretty massively divided. When we think about first principles of human human centered design and, and water access as well and, and mitigation and adaption as you just referenced for a net zero future, you well, when we go back to Stanford, we'll start there. Were you in the engineering were you the art student going to the engineering school or the engineering student going to the art school? And so so I'm curious then from from your perspective, what lessons did you take away? But also from just generally, like what what were the ideas and the philosophies that the school was trying to instill to create this intuition or the uh, the ability to intuit um, mm-hmm. human centered design on everything you see yeah well the first the first reason so I was one of the art students that got put into um, graduate level engineering at Stanford which um, I was doing a lot of computer programming and circuit board design prior to that but it was more kind of homegrown knowledge and um, it's humbling to say the least to to be around some of the brightest minds um, in the country and and learn alongside them right and um, and many of them became dear friends, and many of them kind of helped become my um, my mentor in that in that moment as well, right? Because you know you're kind of a fish out of water; all your core skill sets are left behind, and then you're 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 being asked to really stretch your capability and brain in other ways. And what and and the same happened. So my engineering buddies that were in those classes, I'd give them you know the same kind of support on the art side. But the goal is that you want ambidextrous thinking. You want people left and right brain fluid so that you can not only have your head in the clouds and think up and dream up something that no one could have even possibly thought about and then have your feet on the ground and find that pathway on how you make that idea possible and actually bring it to life. Because it's not enough to to just be able to think, you know, crazy breakthrough ideas if you can't translate it and make it real. And um, I think that was one of the most powerful takeaways that I had from that. And then once you have that skill set, then you bring in the the power of human centered design, where it's saying, okay, now let's let's tap into what is needed in this moment from a product or a service, and then you start bringing those tools to bear to bring it to life. So um, it was it was pretty it was pretty remarkable in some ways. Like I think about luck and I think about chance and I think about all these 
things had I not been at that show, had that person not come in, like it, it materially changed my entire life and my trajectory. And in fact, I credit David Kelly and Tim Brown for, you know, the company that I started because I based it on the same methodology that they taught me, right? Um, that, um, and those, those steps. And then that was really for me going from being a designer to being a dad, where I had these two amazing girls in my life. And, um, and all of a sudden I was using human centered design in our kitchen coming up with what had to be kind of the next thing in baby food. Cause I was like, you know, modern parents need modern solutions and they need to be healthy and organic and, you know, and, um, and can't be bogging down modern parents carrying all these, you know, unsustainable glass jars all over the place. And that's what led us to create Plum, which is one of the leading organic baby food brands in the country today. Yeah. We'll get into Plum, um, very shortly, but just, Peeling back this topic one more time, what? Um, because uh, from my perspective, you you walked away from that experience with a new lens on life, right? Like a, again, like a, a new framework for thinking about it. And so, how did they teach that in presumably a short period of time? Were there any specific resources, materials that you had to read, experiences that you had to go through to build that ability to look at life and and kind of like wonder why a push door has a pull handle on it? Yeah, I mean, one. I think one really simple tool, and anyone who's listening to this can apply it. Um, one of the first things they did when we went into the program was to create a bug list, which is a little mini notebook, you know, in your hip pocket and you pull it out when you see something like, you know, a handle on a push door, right. Where you're like, huh, that doesn't really make sense. And just being able to refine your ability to observe the world around you and then have that critical thinking where it's like, huh, I wonder what could make that better. Right. And that is a, that is a practice that anyone can develop. And it is the first I think it's the the first element of starting design process is seeing something that no one has seen before that has an issue that can be turned into a solution. As I said earlier, humans are very adaptive. So we'll adapt around crazy process steps, you know, to get something done. And someone comes in and it's like, oh no, we'll just, you know, do it this way. And, and you hear people say it all the time. Oh, I wish it seems so intuitive. I wish I had thought of that. And, and the missing piece for that is the observation part, you know? And so I encourage everyone that's listening to create a bug list and start that and, um, and start the next company on some of the opportunities you see. Yeah. Um, I think there's like a fine line though, between being like OCD and, and like complaining about everything, but then having that perspective to, <laughs> to recognize it and then come up with a better solution as well. Yeah. Well, no so, one said uh, des- great designers aren't OCD, you know, I think. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, okay, great. Let's get into Plum Organics, right? So, um, we've covered Vegan Rockstar, we've covered Transition to Stanford, Plum Organics. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with the Plum Organics story, uh, hugely successful kind of modernizing the way we think about food for babies, um, and for children, inventing the pouch that everyone sees, like you see the triathletes who've got them like taped to their bicycle and rip off the top and drink it and then probably throw it on the side, unfortunately. Um, but that didn't exist until presumably you had two daughters. So tell us the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, um, like I said, you know, at the time I was a designer uh, at IDEO and then I had stepped away and then played a role as VP of innovation at Cliff Bar for a bit and, and learned about great sustainability and business principles um, from amazing leadership there. But the former CEO of Cliff Bar and I um, stepped away, and, and in doing so, we we really ruminated around how do we create a, a company around great nutrition for our kids, and you know it was as simple as that premise that we um, we started with Cheryl Laughlin, um, you know, and that was our thesis, and we started jamming and we started coming up with ideas, and 
Um, the pouch itself was interesting because when we first started, we started doing lunchbox snacks for kids, healthy, you know, healthy snacks, organic. And I had found the pouch in Japan. It was a pre-existing packaging system. Equipment was in Italy. And we ended up doing like an applesauce, flavored applesauce for kids. And we launched it and it was, you know, off to the races. And I noticed that a lot of parents were feeding it to their babies. And again, it was this, this this point of observation where the light bulb went off and we're like, that's the big idea. Like the lunchbox snack is great and whatever, but the big idea was bringing baby food into that format. And so we had already built supply chains that didn't exist in the United States around this packaging system. And so I had this very eventful moment. Um, it's called the Natural Products Expo. And that's where it's kind of the watering hole for the natural organic industry. It's like five football fields long of any product that you would see in Whole Foods or Sprouts, you know, it's basically anyone who's in the biz goes there and, and sells their wares. Well, we had we had just started the company and we had enough money for a booth. We had enough money to ship a booth, but we didn't have enough money for both. So um, came up with the idea of buying a school bus, shrink wrapping it with our branding, putting all of our food and, you know, tables and everything inside of it. And then we drove it across the country and drove it right on the show floor and then unpacked our stuff around it. So the bus became our booth. And um, and there was just an enormous amount of buzz, you know, in the, um, again, that was full on punk rock, you know, kind of playing out there, but there's so much buzz coming off of that. And um, it was really, it was a really exciting time. And um, I got introduced the buyer for Babies Are Us, which was surprising to me to, to see him at that show. Cause typically you're, you're looking for the buyer of whole foods in each region and this kind of thing. And, you know, no one was talking to this guy named Paulie D and, um, and I went up to him and I met Paul and, and, um, and he was like, look, I love what you guys are doing. Come out to New Jersey, see me, you know, um, next week. And we'll, we'll talk about bringing you into the, into the babies or us franchise. And when I got there, so we had dinner and, um, and we're, we're having a great time and, and I brought concepts for the baby food pouches, but we hadn't launched them yet. And, um, and Polly D said, look, if you, if you give those to me in three months, I'll launch you nationally and introduce you to every new mom in America because they had the largest baby registry. And in that moment, which is insane to launch a new product in three months in that moment, I just leaned across the table and said, yes, we're, we got it. And, um, my crew is in California. And so I picked up the phone and called them up and I said, Hey, you know, this is a little crazy, but we're going to have to spin the artwork on that baby food line, you know, within a week, get pouches made, get in production and go. And we're going to have our first PO in three months. And the amazing team at Plum completely crushed it. We launched on time and, and there was this moment when product hit the shelves of Babies R Us. And I remember being there kind of like the guy, like kind of walking around is watching to see how, how people were shopping and one one mom picked it up and was like, ah, it looks like space food and put it back on the shelf. And then another another mom picked it up, cracked it open, handed it to her kid in the cart, um, put a whole bunch into her cart and went out. I'm like, that's the moment. That's it. You know, and so for us, it was it was a seminal story in the company. And it was the, the simple premise was lean in and say yes. You'll figure it out. Lean in and say yes and seize the opportunity. And um our company would not have been what it was or is today without having that moment, having Poly D saying yes and, and really going for it. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity as well to say yes in terms of climate um, mitigation mm-hmm. and adaptation, which we'll touch on again with Source, which I promise we'll get to to the listeners. Um, but there's so much to peel back, including one of the things, as you as you reflect back on your time, because Plum um, at this point is like 15 years old. I mean, today is 15 years old, 2022. Um Was there a new lens that you would look on when you would think about your sourcing, your supply chain, your materials um, from a climate standpoint? Um, You know, organic. Now it's huge. It's kind of ready. Um, It's 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 common parlance. But regenerative ag. Are there other perspectives and ways in which you would do things differently at Plum today? You know, a lot of things that we were doing at Plum were pretty nascent that have now grown into common practice. So, for example, like we were the largest sourcer of organic amaranth because we were big into getting um, heritage varietals that were no longer in production because they weren't popular. So we're like, let's get those ancient grains and those varietals that have been lost and let's create a marketplace for them. And and at the time, you know, like I said, we were the largest supplier of it. And that wasn't saying a whole lot because not a lot of people were using it. But But we ended up pioneering some of these methods of Purple carrots back then wasn't a big thing, but we're like, you know what? I think they need to be there because we just got the one carrot and there's more than one carrot out there. And so, you know, we really did try and focus on that. And and what was beautiful about it is actually the young parents um, that were buying our products, that's what they wanted, right? So we were were very much in sync with the zeitgeist of the generation of parents, both then and now, where, you know, the principle of always wanting the best for your baby is true for any parent, right? Um, But how you express that and what that looks like is different, right? And so what we, we what we ended up doing was saying, look, we think organic is the best. We think ancient grains are the best. We think balanced nutrition is the best. We think, you know, all of these things. And, and it ended up coming together. And then we brought just a modern brand that wrapped around it. And, you know, we had communication that was, you know, really just speaking like you, you and I are speaking today, you know, instead of brand marketing stuff, it was like, Real parents, real talk, that kind of stuff. But um, I think, you know, one of the things that is true of nutrition, science, and is it's always evolving, right? Even even organic biodynamics, you know, at the time, or it was really focused on organics, biodynamics is now kind of the next layer. There's always, next thing, even vertical farming, I think, plays a really important role. And so, you know, I've always been a fan of of using business as a force for change. Um, you know, and, and whether it's the product you sell, the supply chain that you build, how do you use it to leverage that systemic change you want to see in the world? And, um, you know, and I think a lot of a lot of amazing companies are kind of carrying that mantle forward um, today. I'm going to ask you one more question before we jump to source, uh, which I promise the listeners is, is, is well worth it. But you touched on the sustainability principles at Cliff, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what those were. Yeah, you know, one of the things that was so amazing about Cliff Bar at the time. And it was really Cliff and Patagonia that were the two companies that were establishing what I would say is the framework of a new business movement, which now actually has a name and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. It's called B Corporation. But, you know, Gary Erickson, the founder of Cliff Bar and the founder and CEO of Cliff Bar was, was really focused on people and planet and everything they did and uh, making sure that every sourcing decision was laddered. The packaging um, decisions they used, you know, everything was making sure that it was healthy for people, healthy for planet and healthy for profit. And that one can sound really provocative, right? But, but I think Patagonia followed the similar principles, but you can make large scale change if you can build a strong and vibrant company, right? And that, 
that different than a nonprofit that a for-profit organization has a flywheel that can spin and then get to scale. And then once you're at the scale that a cliff bar is keeping those principles and practices or a plum organics or any of the other amazing natural organic companies that are out there, that people end up voting with their dollars for the companies that are doing better for the world that are making healthy products for them and their family. And so that is a virtuous cycle, meaning it gives people around the country, largely around the world, the opportunity to buy into the future they want to see through the products they invite into their home, right? And those two brands are really pioneers in that. And um, and many of us have, have followed suit and built companies, you know, largely in the same kind of frameworks um, of those two giants, right? And one of the things that's really exciting is that an organization that was created called B-Lab took those principles and actually turned it into um, a system. It's almost like, you know, the um, the better housekeeping seal of approval for companies that are good for people and planet, right? Now that movement, back then we were, you know, we were an early pioneer, Plum was an early pioneer in that movement. And we were the first company to be certified as a Delaware public benefit corporation, which means that actually our values can be put into the bylaws of our company. So that it's not just like, you know your actions, but it's literally your governance that that defines us. But now that movement has gone global, and there is hundreds of thousands of companies that are following in that framework, either actually certified through this very rigorous 120 point checklist of things, and you get graded and scored against it. Um, to people just being inspired by that and following suit. So um, it's it's super powerful and new movement in business. Yeah, and similarly, we're seeing you know, the ESG movement. I think can, can, is a it may even be a child of the B Corp movement. But from my from my lens, and especially living in the carbon accounting world, we're struggling to figure out what is what is that 128 point checklist for that quantifies something as ESG. And we've got kind of SFDR coming down the pipeline in the EU to classify different kinds of investment funds. Um, yeah, they're all they're they're all coming out of that same movement, right? And in in large part, I think it's the, you know, with ESG, it's it's the street understanding that that value system matters to the end customer. And so it needs to be quantified, whether it's an investor focus or if it's an end use of a product or service or experience from a company. Um, so it actually has intrinsic value where I think the the case that everyone, we all tried to make early days is like, this has so much value, like street value, not just, you know, heart value. And um, and I think now that that's fully acknowledged. Now you're right. It's it's now how do you how do you put in something that everyone can agree on and can be quantified? Totally, mm-hmm. totally. It's like we're trying to send the entire universe or the entire human species through this uh, through the Stanford Design School and say, hey, <laughs> we we want you to stop looking uh, through like the Milton version of economics. Like that lens right. is closed. Now there's a new lens. It's not just it's not just like how efficient is your product, but it's also how sustainable is it. Um, okay, so Plum, around 2013, you um, and the rest of your team exit Plum, sell it to Campbell, and at the same time, in, at Arizona State University, a professor is working on a new technology, um, which become, ends up becoming Source. Tell us about your transition from Plum to Source, but also about the foundations and the origins of Source uh, Source Global, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Dr. Uh, Professor Dr. Cody Friesen um, was the founder and is the CEO of Source Global. Um, back in the day, um, back in 2015, it was called Zero Mass Water. 
And, um, you know, when Cody, his background was in renewable technology. And obviously at the time, a lot of focus on solar. And he was of that sub segment of that industry really focused on um, batteries um, and the, the energy capture from renewable systems. And the company was called Fluidic. And one of the, and he was doing a lot of work in Africa with that technology. And one of the things that he observed when he was there was that um, girls and women fetching water, right? And so it was consuming a large part of their day, typically treacherous walk, either, you know, the treachery is from other humans or from wildlife. And, um, and when you think about those girls and women spending all their time fetching water, bringing water back to the, the village and their families, that really carves out an enormous amount of their own personal development um, and the family development, right? So, um, so he was really struck by that, and so it it started Cody thinking about what is the same principles of renewables that was used for solar that could be used for water, and how could that, if applied correctly, transform people's lives all around the world? Okay, so that was the that was the thesis or the question that Cody was asking, and. And what he ultimately came up with was a technology called a hydro panel. The hydro panel looks uh, like a solar panel if you just look at it for first blush. Um, and it uses solar power to harness and uh, harvest the water vapor that's suspended in the air. Um, and in doing so, it's a fully renewable system. So imagine sun hits the, the face of the hydro panel that activates uh, fans that draws air into the hydro panel itself. And that pure H2L molecule is then, um, is then absorbed through a hygroscopic proprietary material. And that then turns into water vapor in the panel itself. That water vapor gets condensed into liquid water. And that liquid water is pure, right? And then that is mineralized for human health and taste with calcium and magnesium. And when you put this thing out, expose it to sun, it just starts doing that, starts doing that process. And it works virtually anywhere. There's sunlight and air, and it's not frozen. So think about the implications of that, right? So when you when you think about what solar did, there was a time when you know people would say, hey, solar power will never compete with coal on price. Well, five years ago, that, that cross happened, and now solar power is much more efficient. Uh, um, both from a production standpoint and from uh, um, a cost standpoint. The same thing is happening. The Moore's law on the hydro panels happening that, that happened with the solar panel technology. So what's really exciting is that it is the first decentralized source of water that, you know, today we are in 50 countries with over 500 programs. Um, and they range from doing communities in the Navajo Nation. We're putting four panels on a home there where they've never had running water in their home to large-scale arrays of 1,000 panels in Dubai for um, the best drinking water that is available in hotels um, and retail around the world, right? So it really does span most of the needs that humans have related to water. As I think about my mental map of a net zero future, can you, you know, breaking down either from first principles perspective or from like, you know, or, or TAN, if we want to use the mm -hmm. San Francisco sure. version of the word, yeah. what does um, the water problem look like and, and what impact can Source Global have on that, including um, as a decentralized solution, also from the carbon accounting standpoint of removing all the logistics and transportation uh, emissions of existing, of existing transportation of water, removing the waste, um, if you can tie those pieces in as well. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I would just start, and and I think everyone who's listening to this will will relate to this because if you're on your newsfeed, you see artifacts of the water problem every day. All right. So right before jumping on here, you know, there was an article in Bloomberg about the Sierra Nevada snowpack uh, reduction and the implications of that um, for everyone in the West, right? And the forecasts don't look good. It means that we're going to have less snow, less snowpack, which means less runoff, which means less great fresh water to be accessed um, throughout the West, right? So, but every day you hear a story like that. So I'll, I'll put it into some you know, kind of perspective. There's there's four main issues as it relates to water, um, and many of them are persisted by um, by climate change and what I would characterize as a brute force approach to extraction. Right? It's kind of like the equivalent of mining for water. Right? And the first one is scarcity. Um, there's two point four billion people that don't have access to clean, safe drinking water um, in the world today. And by 2050, that number will increase to 6 billion people, right? And that means that 6 billion people will not have access to clean and safe drinking water within 30 minutes of where they live, right? The rings that radiate out from that are even more profound. The next big thing is that those communities that relied on the predictability of rainfall every season, the weather patterns due to climate change have become very they become erratic and, and shifted, right? So where communities that would have, um, you know, droughts and then they'd have monsoons, the pattern, the weather patterns are just fundamentally changing, which means that the predictability isn't there, which means that the systems that were being used um, are not as reliable as they used to be. The third one is contamination, right? So we, um, in many cases, for example, Navajo Nation, um, there's been so much uh, mining for uranium in that region that the water table is contaminated with uranium, right? So, which means that even if you did do the costly effort of drilling and trying to run pipes, which is not economically viable there, the water is not fit for human consumption, right? And that's true. 50% of the wells in the United States, the water coming out of those wells are not fit for human consumption, right? Just to put it into perspective, right? So, where we think we have water and it's good water and it's good for us. It's often not the case. And the the major thing that is filling the gaps on all three of those is packaged bottled water in PET. So a trillion plastic bottles produced every year, uh, consumed every year um, to fill those gaps. So when there's not water, pallets of bottled water will get shipped to a, an area, you know, whether it's in an acute need state or that's the way in which that community gets their, their clean, safe drinking water, right? So um, it's very costly and obviously the impact on the environment is, is detrimental. So one of the things that's very exciting about the hydro panel technology is that it changes the dynamics across all those fronts. The first is that we're not tapping, we're not extracting groundwater, which means by the very nature of that, we don't have that contamination. So we're preserving the water table, but also not having to deal with the, you know, whether it's naturally occurring or man-made contamination that's that's happening there. The second thing is we're fully decentralized, which means that we can put hydro panels virtually anywhere in the world. It's almost like tapping a straw up into the sky and drawing down the water exactly where we need it in the quantities needed, because we can take our technology and have it as small as a panel or two, or as large as 10,000 20,000, 30,000 hydro panel fields, call them water farms, right? And so it's incredibly scalable, incredibly decentralized, which means now all of a sudden 
what we're doing for water is kind of what 5G did for telephones. You're not talking about how we're going to drill wells and run pipes for hundreds of miles. We're actually going 5G on it by dropping in hydro panels and putting exactly the right amount of water exactly where it's needed for those communities. And how do you measure the impact of your work? Are there specifically from an ESG standpoint, um, are there any disclosures or regulations or emission factor sets that you use as a company or your customers use or your upstream or downstream suppliers are engaging with you on to say, hey, you know, life cycle analysis, we're reducing waste, mm-hmm. we're reducing water um, or water water impacts, we're reducing impacts to natural capital? Yeah, so we um, so we're also as we talked about um, the B Corp movement. Um, uh, Source Global is a is a public benefit corporation, and we're also a B Corp, which means we're not only um, a legal entity around having our impact and our values baked into our bylaws of our company, but we also um, are part of the B Corp community. And um, and when we do our scoring, we are in the top you know top percentile of efficacy on better for the planet, better for people, because many of the things we're doing, not only when we drop a hydro farm, a water farm or a hydro panel farm into a community, we're not only increasing human health, you know, by reducing, you know, contamination related issues of diarrhea and uh, malnourishment, um, any of those kinds of things, but we're also reducing plastic consumption, you know, or um, the human capital of, of walking for water, right? So, you know, this is an outstanding statistic, but every day, uh, girls and women spend 200 million hours walking for water every day. All right. And, um, and we did an amazing project with Starbucks in Timor-Leste in a, in a village called Ladojojo village. And it's at a mountainous region of, um, Timor-Leste and, and it's an area of coffee growing where Starbucks obviously has, has, you know, Part of their business and they produce a very you know high grade coffee um and one of the things that you know they're very focused on is worker well-being and making sure that the coffee growers are, are obviously you know have all of the elements they need to thrive in the communities that they live in and so um, we ended up putting a hydro farm into the doho village and that walk for water went from you know typically a four to five hour walk every day to about a five minute walk to the center of town where there were a set of spigots where people could fill their jugs, no longer walking for firewood to boil the water to get rid of the contamination. So there's there's when we talk about measurability, we you know we'd encourage people to go onto the the B Lab website and you can look up our score. Um, very proud of that. But what we we also oh, we focus on is the human impact. The fact that we changed those, the hundred people who live in that village, and we changed their lives in in a small way by bringing this technology in, um, you know, is is it's the core of what we do. It's why I'm here. It's the mission that drives the company, and quite frankly, everyone that um, that shows up, signs up for sources, is here to do that work. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, doing the research into search, uh, into source throughout has been super fun. Again, you know, water is not the main focus from my lens, but it's a huge part of the net zero future. Um, as you think about leveraging a 
decentralized solutions, kind of an oxymoron, right? Like decentralized mm-hmm. leverage, force multiply, all those fun consultancy words. So how are you applying a, a one size fits all solution to a, the global water poverty issue more generally? And then what, what, what support do you need? When I think about a solar project, there's, you know, 50 different players in the life cycle from the financiers to the actual installers. And I imagine right now source is probably playing a lot of those different roles. Yeah. So what does the future like look like? How are you going to leverage this and solve this great problem? And we, then we, you know, give you a big round of applause. <laughs> yeah, no, we, um, the first thing is, I think you said, how do you take one core technology and then have it fit this really large myriad of, of, uh, needs and issues around the world. And, um, and we talk about, it. it's actually one of the things that's so powerful about the hydro panel technology is that it's infinitely scalable, right? So you can have a water farm as large as you need. You can, you know, much like solar, you, you know, if you do a flyover, you'll see these acreages of solar panels, the equivalent is capable of, of, of hydro panels, right? So there's not a limitation in terms of, you know, the water production. Um, the we, we talk a lot about the last meter, and this is where human-centered design comes in, which is like, okay, so we produce all this great water. What's the last meter solution of how someone gets that water and fits it into their life, right? And um, and so you know, in the case of you know every project we do, we kind of we spend time thinking about okay, what is the best dispensing point? What is the way in which this community shares or doesn't share? How do they think about ownership of not only the technology but the water that's coming out of it? And so all of that is critically important to this success of the project it's not just enough to put hydro panels in there it has to be used it has to be used in a way that the community can can receive it and so we do spend a lot of time on that we have a number of ways in which we dispense so you know for example we have an installation in jamaica in a hospital where we have hydro panels in the roof plumbed down into a dispenser in the wall um you know we have um an installation in bahi andita it's a it's a coastal community and the northernmost tip of colombia and in that case, um, due to cost and the environment, we actually just have dispensing right at the end of the arrays of, uh, of hydro panels. Um, they actually, a, a fun, fun little story is that the, the, the goats in the village actually loved the hydro panels because they provided shade. So it ended up being the sort of secondary benefit. So they put fencing around to, uh, to manage that, that situation, but um, but needless to say, that's usually how we how we take one core technology and end up finding its path through. And you know, one that might seem in sharp contrast, but we also the water and the quality of the water is so good that we actually sell it um, in a reusable aluminum bottle at Whole Foods um, in Northern California, Southern Pacific, and Southwest. And so that same water is the same water that's being dispensed, you know, in the Dohoho village in East Timor, in, you know, um, in the Philippines, in Bahia Andida, and also in Whole Foods, you know, so we do think it kind of in a way democratizing high quality water in that way. Totally. It's such a progressive solution as opposed to, um, you know, we think of mitigation and adaption. It's, there's a wide spectrum of regressive solutions. Source is super exciting. Uh, I, you know, I have this image of my mind of like a future of like a farm in California powered mm-hmm. by drip irrigation filled with uh, hydro panels. And that's the future. And Lake Powell and Lake Mead are back at their average pre-industrial levels. But we're running out of time, and I'd love to talk about you quickly as well before we um, before we close. So um, you've had a, 
a, a wide spanning, pretty amazing career. You're still working, um, which I assume is because you love what you do. And exactly. but if you if you weren't working at Source and if you weren't tackling these problems, how would you be spending your time? You know, I think one of the things that um, thank you by the way, I appreciate that that reflection. Um, I feel very fortunate to have somehow by following my passion found my way through luck and ingenuity and all these other things into having some pretty amazing experiences working with incredible people. Um, and this, the same remains true of here at source. Um, you know, I, um, I love, uh, obviously working in mission driven businesses. I love, you know, working and inspiring mission driven people to rally around a common cause to get amazing things, things that you wouldn't think were possible. Um, and, you know, and I think whatever that looks like on, you know, going forward, um, you know, I love, and, and now kind of in, you know, I wouldn't say the later stages of my career, I'm hoping that, you know, just keep, keep working until that's not possible. But, um, you know, I also find a lot of value in mentorship. I, I just um, joined a company as a board advisor of Tax Outdoors, which is a really incredible um, outdoor habitat, it's human habitat, mobile habitat company. That um, was created by Garrett Finney, who is a NASA um, engineer who is creating habitats for space and started taking the same first principles of that and applying it to habitats here for all of us who want to experience the outdoors. And um, and it's been it's been really fun plugging into that, that working with incredible leadership, amazing people and, you know, tapping into a personal passion that I have. So you guys should all check it out. Tax Outdoors. It's it's super cool business, really designed forward um, habitats and um, a company and people that have their heart in the right place. How do you spell Taxa Outdoors? Uh, T-A-X-A and then Outdoors. Okay, great. We'll make sure to put it in the show notes. I have to ask how following your passion is a very hard thing to do, um, especially in a world where finances are key. Are there any tips you have for listeners and how to go do that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, looking in the rearview mirror, it looks, you know, kind of weirdly intuitive and all kind of made sense and stuff like that. And I think, you know, in in the moment, it's not at all. And there were plenty of times when, you know, either me and my business partner were fear stricken or my family, you know, like we, we were making big bets on things that weren't obvious that they were going to be successful. But, you know, following our passion in our hearts and saying, this is work that needs to be done and it's good work and it's fun work. Um, and I couldn't imagine doing anything different. Right. And it's sort of, if that's the ethos and then you have an extremely disciplined work ethic, work ethic, because, you know, with that, all your passion thing and kind of seems like it can almost be a flight of fancy, but like, you know, myself and the people that have had similar kind of trajectories and journeys work incredibly hard. Right. And it's like, don't take no for an answer and find the path to yes and work diligently. The same with Cody at source, you know, he's, he's got a mantra here. Yes. If, um, instead of no, because, and it's like, you have to find your path to the answer and it's not always easy and it's incredibly difficult. Right. Um, and you know, and I think, I think about entrepreneurs in this period of time, it's an incredibly difficult time to be starting a company, um, let alone running a company, um, at any size or scale. The, the macro headwinds around, obviously, coronavirus just turned the, the dynamics completely on their head. Supply chains completely disrupted. Money, it was either flowing um, freely or not flowing at all. And so, you know, I think a lot with a lot of empathy, quite frankly, of of entrepreneurs today navigating these um, these headwinds that are out there and, 
you know, and I think um, at the same time, the world needs these entrepreneurs, the world needs the solutions they're going to create. And, you know, we, we have to back them and we have to make sure that those next innovations that are going to help people and planet, you know, get to market and start changing the world we live in. When you think of sustainability superheroes, it could be a person, it could be an organization, um, it could be a community, who comes to mind? You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of folks um, that come to mind, Bill McDonough, you know, Cradle Cradle. Um, you know, I'd, I'd throw Cody into that, I, you know, the work he's doing with water and what he did with renewable battery technology. It's, um, you know, it's it's core. Um, but, you know, actually, I, I think I think anyone who's working in the industry and working in the sector um, is a superhero from my perspective. Like we need everyone. We need everyone to chime in and pitch in and do the hard work. And sometimes it's super esoteric. Like I'm working in climate. It's like, what the hell does that mean? Like, what is even that as a definition or a, you know, an industry segment? It's way you're saying, yeah, I'm in the baby food business, you know, (laughs) but we need, we need people, we need people to take the leap and get in there. And, you know, from understanding the world we live into, then those resilient solutions that can get us through. Yeah. Um, on the same lines, and I'm not going to let you use cradle to cradle, but is there a specific book or other form of media, podcast, blog, website that's shaped your form of thinking around this nebulous term, sustainability, climate change? You know, um, the one actually, it's it's an old one, but I mentioned it earlier, Eric, um, or sorry, uh, Gary Erickson, Cliff Barr, he wrote a book, and it was Take the White Road, uh, I believe that was what it was called, and it was it was it was talking about his journey and it kind of taps into the follow your passion thing. It talks about his story, but it also talks about his principles for creating businesses for change. I mean, they just sold clip art is sold to Mondelez and you know, this, the story of clip art is really fascinating. And, and, you know, I just think about those pioneers and, you know, he, it was a private company since inception, which was, I believe it was in the, started it in the late 80s i want to say um and up until now private company and just like a massive success but done all in the right ways it's just it's it's incredible right so it's a good read and connecting it back to some of the things we talked about neil it has been such a pleasure i am super super excited to see um sources continue to impact um you're a great storyteller you have an awesome story thanks for coming on the podcast thanks for sharing your lessons and philosophies on a future net zero world um i'm sure source is going to play a role last last thing before we go um if people want to follow your work or they want to get in touch how should they do that um yeah just find me on linkedin and um love to uh I signed off social media about three years ago. It was one of the best things I ever did, but I stayed on LinkedIn so we can have um, business connections. But um, yeah, and thanks for having me. It was an awesome conversation and um, you're doing great stuff here. Thanks again to Neil for joining us today. You can connect with him on LinkedIn, Neil Grimmer. You can learn more about Source Global by visiting their website, www.source.co, not .com, but .co, or via their Twitter, at SourceWaterCo. That's SourceWaterCo. It's all in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life, and if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tani Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening.
If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Sweet, and this is The Net Zero Life.